I've headed this <coughs> this sermon one world and two strategies. Paul has appealed to Rome. You probably know the backstory to this, most of you. That Paul has decided that he wants his case as a preacher of uh, what is regarded in the Roman world as disruption, as a person who stands against the emperor. He's been exonerated from that, but he wants to go to Rome to plead his case. And so he's on this journey, on his way to Rome in this small series of boats in these troubled seas. And in verses four to five, we find him transferring from Sidon, which is uh, Tyre and Sidon, one of the old cities of Phoenicia, uh, to a city called Myra, where they swap ship. Uh, not an uncommon thing to do, I guess, in those times. They swap ship. And then this chaotic journey begins. A journey such as few of us probably have ever, ever known. We might like to say afterwards whether anyone has ever been quite in such turmoil, actual turmoil. But there's a task, a journey to be carried out, and everything seems to be against it. And even worse, everybody seems to have an opinion about it. So in verse 8, they decide that they'll head for fair haven. Well, of course, the clue there is in the name, Fair Haven, a fair harbour, obviously a place that was known to be a good place to go. And yet when they get there, they decide that because it's so late, because they've already had such trouble in the journey, although it might be a good place to shelter, it's not a good place to overwinter. As you know, that back in those times, Generally speaking, journeying was not done in the three or four months of winter, just as war was not fought either in those times. And sheltering overwintering would have meant actually pulling the boat up out of the water, doing the various things you have to do to the underside of boats and so on, and just sitting it out. But they decide that although Fairhaven's a good place in a storm, it's not a, the best place for the winter. But it's late in the season and it's late in the sailing season. It says in, in some of the versions, time of the fast, that's kind of dating it. And it's, it's too late to be undertaking such a journey. And Paul, in verses 9 to 10, he warns them. But everybody, it seems, has an opinion. Everybody has an opinion about what should be done. And we find that among those with opinions, there's the master of the boat, and we might say the captain, there's the owner, these people with money invested in the cargo, of course, and like any business transaction then and now, needing to fulfill a deadline, get the stuff, whatever it was over there. So the master and the owner. And then there's the centurion, he's got an opinion because He's charged with bringing these prisoners, and we gather that there are more prisoners than Paul. Uh, he's rounded them up, and they're being taken over to Rome. These are obviously more important prisoners than usual, that, that they're not executed on the spot or, or summarily just imprisoned. Off they, they go to Rome in the charge of the centurion, and they've all got an opinion. And in verses 9 to 10, uh, Paul warns them about it. He says, sirs, I perceive the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also 
of our lives. And at this point, uh, whether Paul is actually speaking as the voice of God, we're not told. We certainly are later on in the passage. But anyway, he warns them. But he's overridden. There are so many opinions. So there's a chaotic journey. There's a problem that people can't solve. There are people with umpteen different opinions pointing in different directions. And they're still stuck in the problem. Is this beginning to sound like anything? Is this beginning to sound like anything you can recognize today? A journey in which there are plans which fall to the ground, a place in which everybody has an opinion and nothing and, and nobody's opinion seems better than another. What to do to stay, to go, to overwinter, to not overwinter, to sail. If it's not beginning to sound like coronavirus by now, I'm not sure where you've been for the last three or four months. It's beginning to sound like it, isn't it? Everybody has an opinion, whether it's the scientists, Sage, whether it's Boris, whether it's the media, and they have hundreds of opinions, whether it's Sweden, we should do this, we should not do that, whether perhaps it's you, whether it's me. Have we begun to join the crowd expressing an opinion about what should happen? This should happen. That shouldn't happen. It's too early. It's too soon. It's too late. And so on and so forth. Paul's voice is drowned out. We often use the phrase, or the media do these days, the perfect storm. Well, this is a real perfect storm you've got in front of you in Acts 27. A genuine perfect storm, if a storm can be called perfect. Everything seems to be against them. I might ask the question from what we've been going through in the coronavirus. How many experts could you bear? How many could you put up with? And did any of them help? And as you read through the conflicting reports in your newspapers, was there any help? Well, there may have been when you got to page five, but when you got to page seven, you found somebody else seemingly in the same newspaper saying something completely different. Where has been the voice of authority? And more importantly for a Christian, where has the voice of authority been with you? Has it been lost in the hubbub? Has it been lost in the panic and the hubbub of the moment? So they propose that they will, verse 12, that they will winter in Crete. And of course, what you um, may well know, even when they did set sail in this world, they tended to hug the coast. Whereas we would draw a straight line, barring rocks and lighthouses, <clears throat> and maybe in today's wind farms, we would draw a straight line from one place to another. They didn't do that. They hugged the coast. They didn't even have the basic instruments to know where they were at sea. They lacked, for example, a watch, which would you know, tell the time reliably. They lacked that right up until the 18th century. So they tended, where they could, to hug the coast. And of course, in the Mediterranean, uh, it's it set for it because you've got so many islands and you, you just go along the coast and, and you keep land in sight. So that's what they would have done in this storm. Uh, and then in verse 13, there's a gentle wind. And there's a delightful verse here. It depends what version you've got. Some versions say, they thought they had obtained what they wanted. 
and other versions say they thought they had achieved their purpose how human is that eh the the signs seem to be that we're all right now Whew, the wind has died down we've achieved our purpose and of course these people as it turns out on the boat hardly any of them if any except paul seem to understand that there is a god and that he is in control and as we find them they are just like we find ourselves in any crisis we're rebels before a holy god that is always the situation of mankind until we come to the lord jesus christ we're rebels without god and we find in the ancient world in these situations some people called on god even though they weren't really sure who he was or what he did but they are rebels in a perfect storm and they do not know the creator and the voice of the creator is stilled well as christians if we are christians if we know the lord jesus christ as our personal savior then we know that voice and, and we have that voice and we have this word we have god's word to us and we ought not to be behaving as if it were not so do we we ought not to be behaving like those in that ship one plan one scheme after another and then they thought aha we've got what we want we've got the wind we want and then god has other ideas verse 14 the northeaster or some of you would give it a name the Euroclide, and this was obviously such a special wind it, it had a name <clears throat> the northeaster well living where we do in our part of the country we know a bit about the northeaster i think um if you've ever been down to um mersey island and looked at the strood uh during the time of a northeast wind <laughs> and thought about crossing it and you you've unthought it you've thought again and whoever lives on there is stuck on the island until conditions change a bit and if you've been further up the coast to my part of the world to suffolk and uh you've been along to places like dunwich you see what the northeaster has done over the years the destruction that it has wrought we know all about northeasters here and it was so soon after it seemed to be a southerly wind a gentle wind it was what they wanted and life's a bit like that isn't it people think well we've got a purpose now we've got a straight course what we want is going to happen whatever that might be and it might be a good thing it might be a less good thing but we're very keen to have our purpose and they thought they'd achieved it they'd obtained what they want but so soon after this north wind easter comes and in verse 15 to 20 they're letting the boat be driven so from people who thought they knew what they were doing and of course some of these were professional sailors and they did know what they were doing to a point but the conditions were such that they were overwhelmed and so they then decide to just let the wind take them wherever it will and eventually they drop the sail because obviously if you know anything about sailing if you try and fight against an overwhelming wind the boat is just broken up but of course it does mean that you're out of control humanly speaking it does mean that you're going to go where the wind takes you and if you're a christian that means wherever god takes you mm -hmm. and so if you've ever been tempted to think in this coronavirus that while i don't know where we are and things just seem to be going from day to day and i can't do my normal and god is in control 
He's, he's where he's always been. People ask the question, where is God in the coronavirus? He's where he's always been, mm-hmm. in control and working out things for his own purposes. Mm-hmm. And they carry on. And in verse 19, they even have to chuck the tackle overboard. Mm-hmm. So, so what are they doing here? They're actually throwing away their last means of actually being able to work out things for themselves. If the wind died down, they would need that tackle to, to help steer, secure the boat and so forth. But it just becomes an encumbrance when they can't do anything. And, and there's a picture there for us. So many things that we gather around us that seem to have a use. When crisis comes, what worth are they? We ought to know these things, don't we? When real illness strikes, suddenly our house is full of stuff that doesn't seem to matter very much, does it? We've gathered it so carefully, we've labelled it, if we're that kind of person, if we haven't, we've stuck it in a corner. But either way, we like to come home to our house full of stuff, full of possessions. But when real illness strikes, none of it actually matters, does it? And of course, as sinners, we have that real illness, that we are rebels without the Holy God, and we need the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we need his guidance in our lives. And when the crisis such as we're living through strikes, without the Lord in our lives, and I say this to Christians and non-Christians, without the Lord in your life, you're rudderless, you're without a direction, you're without the ability to control. You're at the mercy of these experts. And what a place to be, eh? At the mercy of, of the experts. And then the moon and the stars disappear. Can it get any worse? Yes, it can. It gets black. What a journey these people were on. Every hope of seeing where they were, the moon, the stars, it's such a storm that they have never ever known. And it goes on for days and nights. And it gets to the point where they don't actually know whether it's day or night. So dark it is. And they're just being driven along and they have no hope, hope of relying on themselves. And in this watery chaos, God speaks, verses 21 to 26, speaks through the voice of Paul. Paul stands up, God speaks, and he says, there's going to be safety for everybody, but not for the ship and not for the cargo. All of you, all 276 of you are going to be brought safely, but not the ship and not the cargo. Now, you might ask why? Why does God say this? And the answer is we don't know. We don't know why God says this. He said it, and that's enough. But more importantly, and I guess they were quite pleased to hear this, well, they should have been, there would be safety for all. And yet, of course, they don't act on those words, do they? We know that the Lord Jesus Christ promises new life. We know that he promises forgiveness from sin, that he promises through his blood that cleansing and after that a life with him a life with god directing us we know these things we've heard them perhaps many times and yet we want to cling on to the cargo we want to cling on to the stuff to the the things of our life how precise these words are from god aren't they how precise god has it all in hand What an encouragement it must have been to Paul, not to anybody else, apparently, but to Paul. 
God has it all in hand. I, I guess Paul knew that, but what a reassurance from him for him at that time. We, we make our plans, don't we? And then sometimes we try to salvage something from the wreck of the plans. Uh, we try our plan B and our plan C. That's the nature of life. But in doing so, we often lose our peace, don't we? We often lose our peace because we haven't obtained our purpose. It's at that point we need to turn to the Lord who has everything in his hand, who has all things under control. God cares. There used to be a hymn that we sing, sung. Well, I guess it's still around. But I'd be surprised if you have it in your hymn books. Perhaps you do. That says, not a single shaft shall hit till the God of love sees fit. And the shaft there is, of course, an arrow. Not a single arrow shall hit till the God of love sees fit. What a truth is in that. Our times are in God's hands, friends. They really are. And they ought to be nowhere else in our view. We ought not to be placing them in the circumstance and just looking out of the window and hoping for a change of wind and circumstance. Leave it with the Lord. Leave it with the Lord. We've been tossed. We've been unsettled by it all. Who hasn't been, I guess? Which expert should we trust? Trust the one who took on flesh and came into this mess of the world to save your soul. Trust that one. Trust that one and no other. We're rebels under the curse of Eden and wanting our own way is part of that. We see it even early on in the Bible after the, the actual fall, not very many chapters on in Genesis. We get people building a tower, the Tower of Babel. And it's very interesting, that account, because it tells you why they did it. It tells you what they actually said as they built the Tower of Babel. They said, let's make a name for ourselves in case we get separated, in case we get split up. Let, let's put down a marker, we might say in modern terms. Let's make a name for ourselves. And God saw that differently. When God looked down on their building of the Tower of Babel, God replied, if they achieve this, well, nothing's going to be impossible for them. God said, if they get their own way in doing this thing, which is an unholy thing, well, where are they going to stop? We need to bear that in mind when we follow our own path as rebels. Where is the end of following your own path? Where does it stop? Where does happiness appear? And you say, well, that's it. Fine, I turn to the Lord now. It doesn't work like that, does it? It's either the Lord's way or it's your own way, and ultimately that's destruction. They thought they had obtained their purpose. Have you heard people talking about a new normal? A new normal. Um, some of the lifestyle pages in the newspapers are quite keen on it. Uh, various people step forth uh, out of their celebrity status to tell you that they realise their lives are too cluttered. Uh, and after the, the coronavirus, they're going to do this, and that and they're going to get rid of this and they're going to examine their relationships and so on and so forth it's a kind of glorified new year's resolution now, obviously with people having more time to think about it well you know what how new year's resolutions work don't you you know in what state they lie in by january time january the 5th comes around mostly in wreckage on the floor and yet people do not learn we do not learn as rebels we say well we're going to have a new normal. You can't have a new normal when you're a rebel against God 
you can't have smooth sailing and your own purpose if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as the pilot of your life, as your saviour, as the one who's in control of all things. If you purpose to have a new normal, but you purpose to do it without having given a thought to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're onto a loser, friends. You're onto a complete loser there. A new normal can't be repurposed without the Lord. Maybe as Christians, it has made us think more seriously before the Lord about what we should do. Well, that's good. It's always good to do those things and to consider what in our lives, in our church lives, might need to be looked at again. It's always good to take those opportunities. And obviously this is one such. But if it means that you really consider things which are actually not important, but only seem so, what a waste of opportunity that is. And, and how the world wastes their opportunity. God has spoken. Now, I'm going to be perhaps a little controversial for some of you. If you know your Bibles well, it shouldn't be controversial at all. People say, where is God in the coronavirus? And I say, well, where he's always been, doing what he always does. But I want you to direct your thought, and for some of you this might be a bit difficult, to the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation, while it's often a strange book and it's full of visions, most Christians of our persuasion believe that the events described in the book of Revelation, by far the most of them, until you get right to the end, are not about some great future time. They're about now. Those events in Revelation are about now. They're about God dealing with the world as it is currently, as it always is currently before God. So, for example, you get announcements in heaven that there are going to be curses on the earth there are going to be droughts or disease or flood and generally speaking the pattern in the book of revelation is that these things are announced in heaven we get a little glimpse of what goes on only a small one but god talking about what he purposes to do with his world and he's going to judge his world not just at the end not just judgment day but all the time god is always calling people to themselves, to, to himself, to look at their creator and to look at their responsibility before him. So in Revelation, it says there are plagues, there are diseases. And then it says things like, but only a third of the world was burnt up. In other words, there will be disasters, there will be trials, but not everyone will die. And that, of course, is exactly what we see from, you know, we, we're, going along, we switch the six o'clock news on, and we discover this terrible disaster in some part of the world, a flood, a famine, a fire, and it's terrible. But God, in his mercy, in, eventually stays his hand, and those events are meant to think, they're meant to say to you, how long have I got? How long, and what am I gonna do with my life? And where is the Lord in my life? And do I love him? And have I asked forgiveness for my sin? And do I intend to live the rest of my life for him? Events are meant to ask, to bring you to that point. Revelation is quite clear on it. Because people are rebels, they don't turn to God. And so when you ask, where is God in the coronavirus? He's where he's always been. But the question is for you, what are you doing before God? God is warning. He's warning everybody. 
And some people have been swept into eternity. They've already had their warnings in this life and have taken, no, sadly, no notice of them. Others have gone into eternity knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ is their own personal saviour and they're in a better place. They don't have to worry about getting Zoom working this morning. They're in a far better place than all of us. Praise the Lord for that. But these things are meant to make us think about our relationship with God because we are rebels by nature. And the scripture is quite clear on that. Now, note in verses 23 to 4, the angel explains to Paul that you must stand trial before Caesar. And then note how gracious God is. He says to Paul, everybody else's life on this boat has been given to you as a kind of treasure, as a kind of reward. Paul was, as, uh, was a humane man and he didn't want even whether they were believers or not. He didn't want people to perish and die. Of course he didn't. And God says graciously, they're all going to be saved for this life, Paul. And that, that's what we call common grace. The sun shining on the righteous and unrighteous together. That's God's common grace. But I also want you to notice this, and maybe you not never thought of it, that God has a plan for this world. And the plan centers around the Lord Jesus Christ and his church and his people. That is God's overriding plan for this world. Now, that might seem a laughable idea if I went onto BBC and tried to introduce that. I'd get short shrift, I'm sure. But nevertheless, the word of God is quite clear that from Genesis, where mankind fell, to the end of Revelation, where we're restored to a garden, and where uh, there is life forevermore for those that love the Lord, there has been a covenant plan. And it's been revealed through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, right the way down until the Lord Jesus Christ, who was prefigured in the Old Testament as a king, as a shepherd, as someone who would come and be forever. That's God's plan from the beginning to the end. And in fact, it was a plan he had even before the world fell, we're told in Scripture. It's God's plan. And so he has a plan to wind up the world as well. He knows exactly what he's doing. And we need to be mindful as Christians that God always has a plan. But if you're not a Christian, note this, that those 275 are being kept alive by God because of his plan. Paul's, God's plan is to get Paul to Rome because Paul is going to, when he gets to Rome, he's going to preach. He's going to write letters of the Bible, which aren't, don't exist at this point. He's going to write parts of the Bible, which we are going to be studying. He's going to be God's messenger for the ages. And so he has a plan for Paul. The Lord has a plan for him, but he graciously gives him the 275. If you're not a Christian, but you know Christians, don't regard them as small people. Don't regard them or Artillery Street, uh, which I know well. Uh, I pointed out to some of you when I was uh, there with you last year that I was at Essex as a student and I was at Artillery Street before any of you were. Uh, right, right back in the uh, end of the 1960s, I used to go to Ar Artillery Street. And the Lord has graciously done a good work there over the years and it's, it's fluctuated, hasn't it? And some people living around there might think, well, what's that little old place? 
you know, what are those people doing and coming and parking on my pavement on a Sunday morning, etc., etc.? What's the relevance of it all? Well, if you partly think like that, the relevance is that they are the central people in this earth. That church, that little chapel, is central to God's plan for this whole earth. God's plan is to bring people to himself through the Lord Jesus Christ and the preaching of his word. So don't despise it. Don't diminish it. Go there. Attend. Listen to his word. Seek the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all part of the plan to save. And Paul was going to be brought safely to Malta. And it was all on account of God's plan. His plan for a rebel world. And they run aground. They tried everything by the time they run aground, don't they? They, they even think about killing the prisoners. That, that sounds awful, doesn't it, to our, to our modern way. Oh, well, at least we won't get blamed if the prisoners escape. We'll, we'll kill them. But um, the centurion prevails against that idea. And so that doesn't happen. But, of course, God is overseeing that. Where is God in the coronavirus? Well, the same as where he was in this shipwreck bringing them all safely to land, bruised, battered, having tried their own way. But God's way is always going to prevail. There has been a warning. There always is. God is in control. He is moving. He's warning. He's watching. But he's also caring and he's loving. Why do we resist that? Why not come to him? He, he is so lovely that he warns us. Our own ship. Well, it can't be saved without the Lord Jesus Christ. I get the point that many people would say, well, it's all right for you to talk like that, but, you know, a God of love and so on. And this crisis, <clears throat> Jesus was talking to some people when he was on earth. And he anticipated a question which they hadn't actually asked. He said to them, what do you think about the Tower of Siloam? Well, apparently the Tower of Siloam was, was, was local big news. It was, it was some kind of, we can gather from reading that it was some kind of catastrophe in which a, a tower had collapsed and 18 people, I don't know whether they were in the tower or under it or a mixture of, we're not told, but 18 people had been killed. And Jesus, he's not asked the question, he poses it himself. He says, what do you think about it? In other words, he's probing their heart and mind. Are you thinking, how can a God of love allow that? How can a God of love allow those people to die? I knew some of them, you know, they were good people. And Jesus replies like this to a question they haven't answered. He says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Life for those 18 people suddenly ended. They were snuffed out. And Jesus says, don't spend your time aggravating against God and against the fact that this world has fallen and the fact indeed that mankind brings most of it upon themselves anyway. Don't spend your time aggravating and having an opinion about that. Think about yourself and about your status before God. If it happened to you tomorrow, the coronavirus, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal savior? Many who do know him have gone that way already and are rejoicing in heaven this morning praise him for that but these things are a warning god is plan plans to save us through jesus and through warning us to come to jesus we need to confess our sin and let his blood 
and his Holy Spirit then wash over our lives. <clears throat> Paul actually wanted to go to Rome. He kind of appealed for it. We're not actually told this, but we are told about Paul that he wanted to preach where nobody had ever preached before. Now, I don't know if he knew whether there were Christians in Rome or not. We're not told. And I wonder whether, in fact, when he said he wanted to go to Rome, he had ideas of church planting. Well, if he did, he was much mistaken, because when he got there, the Christians were already there. Somehow or other, there was a thriving church in Rome already. So whatever ideas Paul had of what he was going to do, maybe he thought he was going to march up to the emperor and tell him, tell him what ought to be happening in the empire. What actually happened was that he was placed under house arrest for two years. So he was kind of kicked into the long grass as far as the Romans were concerned. He was just left aside. But what a two years that turned out to be for Paul, preaching in house churches, people coming to him, free movement, writing of the word of God, which we now have in our hands uh, and which lasts for eternity. What a two years that turned out to be. Traditionally, we're told that Paul was executed after that time, although we don't actually know. We're not told in the Bible. It's, it's, it's tradition. However that may be, it turned out to be a glorious time for Paul, but probably not in the circumstances that he'd imagined. There used to be an old chorus that was sung, with Christ in the vessel, you can smile at the storm. How appropriate that is for the storm of coronavirus and for this passage we've got in front of us. But how this morning we ought to think to praise God for the fact that, yes, he is in control and he knows where we're going. He knows the end of all these things. And praise God, the end of it is to glorify Jesus and to bless his church. Don't stay outside of that blessing, friends. Don't stay outside of that church. Call on him this morning. Trust him. He has the future in his hands and it's as safe as houses and more safe. We commit ourselves to the Lord, don't we? We, we worship him because of what he's done. Dying for rebels, the, the innocent dying for the guilty. Warning after warning we receive in our lives. Don't let it be frittered away. Turn to the Lord. Worship him, love him, serve him, follow him. It's the only place to be in or out of the virus. It's the only safe place. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it has a word in season for every occasion. Lord, we look and we see these people adrift on a boat and we look at our own world and sometimes we are very adrift. We personally try everything we can before we turn to you in prayer. We turn to every method of saving ourselves or enhancing or furthering our own cause when all the time the Lord Jesus Christ is loving kind. He is the one who is able to save and to help and to guide and to steer us. Lord, we commit ourselves into your hands and we pray that you'll bless the rest of our time together and the rest of this day. And as we go into another week, we ask that Jesus might be glorified in our lives and in this church. For we ask it for his sake. Amen.